Welcome back to Tequila Shiro, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender. And for today's case, Sloan's bringing us a somewhat local, we'll say it, what, you said Louisiana? It's a southern crime. Yeah, it's a southern crime. And I literally looked at the, the little spreadsheet we have and I went, what the hell is this name? And I was like, okay. So, if we're saying this wrong, I'm so sorry, but we're saying Yoshihiro Hattori. Mm-hmm. Sloan's probably going to call him Yoshi because yes, that's, uh, that's his nickname. That's a much easier. And that's his nickname. nickname. So, and it reminds me of Mario Kart. <laughs> but I don't remember hearing this one. So, it may or may not be new to me. We'll find out. But. I'm excited to hear it. Welcome back to another round of bartending with your bartender, Trish. And today's drink's just a simple one, but color-wise, it fits the uh, spooky season aesthetic. It's just your simple Midori Sour. If you want to give it a fun little name, you can. But it's just however much Midori you want. It just, Midori is a melon flavor, so some people don't really like that. Me. I'm some people. <laughs> So what I did was just like an ounce to like an ounce and a half of Midori and then about like probably like three ounces, two or three ounces of your sour mix. And that's it. If you want to add some Sprite, it makes it like a little tolerable. (laughs) It gives it a little more sweetness and it also like kind of makes it fizzy in that. So it's even more so spooky season appropriate, but like I said, it's a very simple drink. It's one that most people know. So, give it a test and let us know what you think. If you find a fun way to, like, spruce it up to make it even more spooky season. You could add, like, a sherbet. Like, yeah. a lime sherbet or yeah. something. Oh, that'd be so good. <laughs> yeah. But that is my drink. And we'll kick you off to the case. Yoshihiro Hattori was born on November 22, 1975, in Nagoya, Japan. He was the middle child, having an older brother and a younger sister, who remember him being a very social kid and a teen who loved fishing and rugby. When he was 16 years old, Yoshi signed up for the American Field Service, AFS, Student Exchange Program. In his entrance paper for the program, he said, quote, Wherever I go, I wish I could make the country a second home country. I can make Japanese cooking like tempura cutlet for host families and introduce the living way of Japanese. My brother would have been in love. Like, my brother always wanted to go to Japan. He... Um, Logan would be in love. (laughs) Yes. So, I'm just saying, my brother would have welcomed this kid with open arms. Yoshi was even the recipient of a scholarship from the Merida Foundation for this trip to the USA, and more specifically, he was assigned to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yoshi arrived in Louisiana in August of 1992, just in time for school to start. He was staying with the Haymakers, his homestay family. Dr. Holly Haymaker was a physician, and her husband Dick Haymaker was a theoretical physicist. So think Leonard Hofstetter from Big Bang Theory. Like, I heard that job description, and my husband and I are currently watching Big Bang Theory. And so I was like, I know, I know that. (laughs) But who is it in the group of friends that is the theoretical physicist? Leonard. Yeah. So the Haymakers had hosted foreign exchange students before, but they recalled that Yoshi made an immediate good impression on everyone that he met. He was excited, probably a little nervous, but definitely excited to start school and meet new people and do all the American things. Like the little social butterfly he was, he made friends quickly, 
Holly said Yoshi was very enthusiastic. He was a total extrovert. The kids at McKinley High School loved him because he was such a free spirit. He was a really, really extraordinary guy. He was life. He moved through space like a dancer. The haymaker son, Webb, who was also 16 at the time, said Yoshi had an enormous appetite for life and experience and tried to make friends wherever he went. The pair went to a blues festival in September, and blues is like a big thing in the South, but especially in New Orleans. Uh, well, like Louisiana, that's what I'm trying to say. In Louisiana, the blues is a really big thing. So not surprising at all that there was a blues festival. So the two went, and at the festival, Yoshi was put in touch with another Japanese exchange student through some teenagers that they met there. A couple of months into his stay, a few weeks after the festival, Yoshi and Webb were invited to a Halloween party just northeast of Baton Rouge in the city of Central. This party was put together for Japanese exchange students on October 17, 1992. Yoshi was dressed to the nines in a white tuxedo. He was going as John Travolta, John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever. Webb was dressed as an accident victim, using a neck brace from a swimming pool injury earlier that summer, and he also added a few extra bandages for a little bit more dramatic effect. I mean, you do what you gotta do. I mean, I'm looking for the cheapest outfit for Halloween always, too, <laughs> so I understand. The two boys found the quiet, working-class neighborhood where the party was held. However, they mistook the Pierce's home for the party spot. The addresses were very similar in number, 10311 versus where they were looking. They were trying to find 10131, so... As somebody that gets numbers and letters confused very easily, I understand. A few cars were in this driveway, and the PRCs were like us in that they had their house decked out for Halloween. So, these two teenage boys driving up to the house, they see what they think is the correct house number. They see cars out front, and they see Halloween decorations. So, they think this is the spot for the Halloween party. Unfortunately, it was not. The boys got out of their car, they walked to the front door, and then they rang the doorbell, but there was no answer. Meanwhile, inside the house, Bonnie Piercy peered out the side door and was startled to see the two young men. Bonnie went back inside, locked the doors, and then went to her husband and said, Rodney, go get your gun. I have to ask, what threat did these two boys present? To where you think that your husband needs to go get a gun. They were literally walking back to their car whenever you said that you needed the gun to, pr to protect your home. Whatever. Right. Yoshi and Webb were still walking back to their car when the carport door opened again. This time, it was Mr. Piercy. He was armed with a loaded and cocked forty-four Magnum revolver, which he pointed at Yoshi and yelled, Freeze. At that exact moment, Yoshi took a step towards the home saying, We're here for the party not noticing or perhaps not caring about the gun. And I say not caring because you have to remember this boy is from Japan and handheld guns in Japan are very much illegal. It's not a normal activity for citizens to own guns in that country. So for him to like see one, he might not have even known what he was looking at. You know, that's what goes through my mind. So, he walks towards the house owner saying, we're here for the party. Webb, his homestay brother, on the other hand, saw the gun and shouted for Yoshi to stop and retreat. But Rodney immediately fired his gun at point-blank range at Yoshi, hitting him in the chest, and then ran back inside, shutting the door. Webb rushed to his brother, who was badly wounded and lying where he fell, Webb ended up running to the house next door to ask for help since neither of the Piercys had checked on either of the boys since the incident until the police arrived nearly 40 minutes later. This couple just stayed in their house. Yeah. Yeah. Bonnie ended up shouting at a neighbor to go away when the neighbor did call for help. The shot... That was fired, pierced the upper and lower lobes of Yoshi's left lung, and exited through the area of the seventh rib. He ended up passing away in the ambulance ride within minutes from loss of blood. I'm sure. Right. 
Meanwhile, across town, the haymakers were leaving date night at the movie theater, watching The Last of the Mohicans. Holly said to Richard when they left the movie, quote, It's great that this country isn't as violent as that anymore, end quote. Uh, I wish that was true. Right? As they left the theater, her pager went off and she called the number. It was the police. The officer on the other end of the line told her Webb was fine, but Yoshi was not. Holly said that they would meet the police at the hospital, to which the officer responded, That won't be necessary. Dick and Holly raced to the police station where Webb was sitting alone, unaware of what had happened to his friend slash brother after, after the ambulance drove away. His parents were the ones to break the news to him. Yoshi's parents learned the news from a worker with the exchange program, because they're around the world, (laughs) mind you. And his mother retreated to her son's childhood bedroom and cried for two days until they came to the United States. So two days after the killing, the Hattori's flew to New Orleans and Holly recalled, quote, I was terrified. I was the one that was supposed to take care of their son and he was killed, end quote. I literally cannot imagine. Right. Like, you were entrusted with somebody else's life and something happens on your watch. And it's not your fault. Like, I'm not saying it's her fault whatsoever. There's nothing, even if she was there, there was nothing that she could have done to prevent what happened. Yeah. But knowing that you were in charge of somebody else's child's life. I'm sure the guilt is... Outrageous. Yeah. So I completely understand. Like... I'm an awkward turtle to begin with, but if I was in this situation where I had to go pick up the family of the child, like, <sighs> my heart hurts thinking about this whole situation from all sides, but I digress. Back to, back to the storyline, to the plot line. But the Hattori's only had concern for the haymakers when they arrived. The first words out of Yoshi's mother's mouth were, how is Webb? She was concerned for their son and his mental state and his well-being when they had just lost their own son. Initially, the local Louisiana police questioned and released Rodney fairly quickly, declining to charge him with any crime. Hmm. They believed that Rodney had been within his rights in shooting the trespasser to protect his home. It wasn't until the governor of Louisiana at the time and the New Orleans Japanese consul general protested that Rodney Pierce was charged with manslaughter. So come to trial a few months later, Rodney's defense claimed that Yoshi had extremely unusual manner of moving and that any reasonable person would find him scary. The emphasis was placed on Rodney being an average Joe, a man just like any of the jury members' neighbors, anybody that we know. And to that I say, I'm sure you were just like the southern white man that I know. But that does not excuse this action. Right. In fact, it's really just a reason for this action. Not that it's an appropriate reason, but you get what I'm saying. At the trial, Rodney testified about the moments leading up to the shooting. Quote, it was a person coming from behind the car moving real fast. I want you to remember that. It'll come back later. At that point, I pointed the gun and hollered, freeze. The person kept coming toward me, moving very erratically. At that time, I hollered for him to stop. He didn't. He kept moving forward. And I remember him laughing. I was scared to death. This person was not going to stop. I was going to do harm to He was going to do harm to me. Rodney testified that he shot Yoshi once in the chest when he was about five feet away. I had no choice. You had no choice but to make a fatal shot. Like, you couldn't have shot him in the arm to disarm him. Like, to just slow him down or stop him. Not even to mention, like, Rodney is a grown-ass man. And this is a teenager. And just, like, consider... Just 
hypothetically yeah. with me, hang in there for a second with me. You have this white Southern man and regardless of what build he is or how tall he is or whatever, most white men are taller than Asian men. Like Asian men stereotypically are fairly short. So you have this man from Japan, this now boy. You have the occasional ones that are, are not short, but Right. This was not Yoshi. <laughs> Yoshi was like all of like five foot six, five foot seven. And Rodney was six foot two or six foot three. And so you're telling me that this six foot two, six foot three man is scared of this five foot six boy. That's like the men that try to claim they are scared of like these like tiny ass women. Which, yes, we can be scary. Oh, I'm fucking terrifying. Terrifying when I'm mad. But, like, come on. Yeah. A lot of us, you can overpower. Easily. Yeah. So, Rodney said, I had no choice. I want Yoshi's parents to understand that I'm sorry for everything. I'm sure you fucking are. That you got caught. Your apology does not bring their son back. Like I said, you could have you could have taken other shots. And I'm not a gun person. I don't believe in having guns. My husband's the complete opposite. Like, he wants to have guns to protect us and this and that. I'm just not that person. Yeah. I feel like... I feel like the intruder coming into my house should not have access to a gun to attack me. So why should I have an access... Why should I have access to a gun to protect myself from them? If I don't want them to have a gun to harm me, then that means that I can't have a gun to, like, protect myself. Yeah. And then that being said, if they can't have a gun, then it's mono e mono man, and come at me, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> scrappy-dappy-doo. Right? I'm like... <laughs> I've said this before. I'm the youngest of eight, five of which are boys, and I... <laughs> I learned how to basically be scrappy at a very young age. I am the oldest of three, but I grew up with brothers. But honestly, I was tougher on my brothers than they were on me. But it's because my dad was a baseball player, like whenever I was born. And he retired when I, re when I was really young. But then he went back to school. And so whenever I was in like kindergarten, first grade, I was around... SEC college baseball boys all the time in kindergarten and first grade. <laughs> and then whenever we left there, he went to coach community colleges. So for the next several years, I was around 18, 19, 20, 21 year old boys. And like, no, they weren't trying to fight me, but that was a lot of testosterone to grow up around, you know? Yeah. And it took its effect on me. I'm a very manly girl. I, it is what it is. Anyways, we digress. Back to our case. District Attorney Doug Morrell argued that it wasn't reasonable for Rodney, a six foot two, well armed man, to be so fearful of a polite, friendly, unarmed, one hundred thirty pound boy who rang his doorbell. Even if Yoshi was unexpectedly approaching him, there's no reason that Doug uh, that. Rodney should have pulled the trigger. Doug argued that Rodney was not justified in using deadly force. It started with the ringing of a doorbell. There were no masks, no disguises, nothing intimidating. People ringing, and ringing doorbells are not attempting to make unlawful entry. They did not walk to the backyard. They didn't start peeking in windows. They did not make any attempt to try to break into this house. They walked up, rang the doorbell, got no answer, and then started walking back to their car. Right. Me, my, my ir illogical, like, fear growing up when I was home alone, somebody would, like, knock on the door and then I'd be like, well, if it's a killer, yes, because they want to announce themselves. <laughs> I mean, in Home Alone. <laughs> And That's home alone. Why <laughs> they did try to knock on the doors? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> which probably saved Kevin's life from the get-go. But so here is a transcript from the trial. The DA David Morale asks, 
You were safe and secure, weren't you? Rodney Rodney said, yes, I was. David, but you didn't call the police, did you? No, sir. Did you hear anyone trying to break in the front door? No, sir. Did you hear anyone trying to break in the carport door? No, sir. And you were standing right there at the door, weren't you, with a big gun? Rodney nodded. I know you're sorry you killed him. You are sorry, aren't you? Yes, sir. But you did kill him, didn't you? Yes, sir. Even if you feel guilty, you probably should still pay the time. Yep. This is not like one of those instances where the victim antagonized the defense. No. No. (sighs) Anyways, Rodney testified in a very flat, toneless drawl throughout the trial, breaking out into tears several times. A police detective testified that Rodney said to him the night of the murder, Boy, I messed up. I made a mistake. Fuck yeah, you made a mistake. Right. Okay. The defense argued that Rodney was in large part reacting reasonably to his wife's panic. Bonnie testified for over an hour describing the incident, during which she also cried several times. What is the word for this? A white... White outcry? No. (laughs) There is like a specific racial term for this whenever like white people try to play the victim whenever they were the antagonist against a person of color. Like, just because you're white doesn't mean you're right. Yeah. I said what I said and I meant it. (laughs) Coming from two (laughs) two white women. That's why I can say what I said. Just because you're white does not mean you're right. Yep. We fuck up all the time, and it's time that we start owning up to our fuck-ups. So Bonnie was testifying. She cried. That's where I was. She said, quote, He was coming real fast, and it just clicked in my mind that he was going to hurt us. I slammed the door and locked it. Which to me is funny because whenever you were watching them, they were walking back to their car. So how was he approaching you fast? Yeah. I digress. Going back to her quote. I took two steps into the living room where Rod could see me and I could see him. I told him to get the gun. End quote. Rodney did not hesitate or question his wife, instead retrieving the gun on a mission to protect his family. And for this, I do want to, like, kind of say that I could see Nate doing the same thing. Like, if I'm like, hey, go get the gun. You need to protect the house. But also, Nate's very level-headed to the point where he'd be like, all right, I'm going to go get it. But he's also not going to, like, cock the gun and have it ready until he knows what's going on. Like, he's going to assess the situation on his own. I'm the one that would be the one likely to pull the trigger, which is why I don't believe in guns. (laughs) I just know my temperament and all that shit. But even just more than that, like, like I was saying earlier, if I don't want the other side against me having a gun, then how do I feel like it's right for myself to have a gun? And that's how, like, yeah, I see that. The trial lasted seven days and Mr. Hattori was there for every single one of them. Listening to the defense call his son out of control, a hyperactive Japanese exchange student who thought his job was to scare people. That sounds quite opposite from the kid that we heard about in the beginning. Yeah. Who was very friendly and looking forward to teaching his host family about Japanese culture, like meeting friends everywhere he goes. Yeah, that sounds like somebody that wants to scare everybody that he meets. Oh, yeah. After the jurors deliberated for three hours and 45 minutes, Rodney Piercy was acquitted. You don't say. Mm-hmm. A white man in Louisiana getting out of a murder. Against a person of color. Yes. Yeah. I think it's absolutely incredible that after everything was said and done, the Hattori's said, quote, We think Rodney Piercy is also one of the victims of America. That Rodney Piercy was acquitted is not related to our gun control activism campaign. And speaking of their campaign, the Hattori's petition drive gathered pace upon the trial. And in the end, some 1.7 million Japanese people and one plus million Americans signed their petition. 
Yoshi's story dominated the country's front pages and news broadcasts for weeks. Dick Haymaker also decided to gather signatures in the United States to help out the Hitoris. In the end, about 150,000 written signatures turned up by post to Dick by himself. Um, Holly said he Dick basically gave his year to that petition drive. It was before email, before the World Wide Web. It was before Facebook, before any of this social media. So it all had to be done by telephone and snail mail. What do you think about that, Gen Z? You're right. Do you think you could do that? <laughs> Both families, the Haymakers and the Hattoris, were in Washington in November of 1993 as part of their campaign. Everyone recognized them from their appearances on all three network morning shows. Dick said, when after months of trying, they managed to get a note from Miko to a friend of the family who happened to be staying at the White House... He was an old roommate of Bill Clinton's. He was able to pass along the petition to Bill Clinton. President Clinton spoke to the haymakers and the Hattoris in the Oval Office. They said, we felt we were welcomed. We believed he understood our position and he desired strong gun control laws too. The Hattoris and the haymakers agreed that despite his private support, there was little the president could do to help practically. But they proposed gun control measures had gotten a boost from their campaign. It also helped that the 30th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's assassination that month helped raise awareness to the issue. That month, Congress passed the Brady Handgun Violation Prevention Act, the Brady Act, Mandating background checks on gun buyers and a five-day waiting period on all gun purchases. President Clinton signed it into law just weeks after meeting the the Hattoris and Haymakers. U.S. Ambassador to Japan Walter Mandel traveled to Nagoya to meet the Hattoris in December of 1993 and gave them a copy of the Brady Law, saying they had a very definite impact on passage for the Brady Bill. It had been first introduced in 1991, but was not brought to vote until a few months after Yoshi was killed. And like I said, the Brady Handgun Violation Prevention Act is what requires the criminal history background checks, as well as a five-day wait term, if they buy from a like legalized private buyer sort of situation. And this is where I feel like we could get better because people can still get around the background checks and the mental health checks and all that kind of stuff. I digress again. The following summer in September, 1994, Congress passed the federal assault weapons ban, a 10 year moratorium on manufacturing certain semi-automatic weapons for civilian use. Where would we be today? If that had been a permanent ban and not a 10-year ban. 1994 to 2004 was the year, like, that's when that ban happened. Yeah. Think about all of the automatic weapon shootings that have happened since 2004. I'm just saying that we had an opportunity at that point to make that a permanent option. Because I feel like at this point in this day... We're we're too divided to make that a permanent decision. It's not going to happen today. It should have. It could have and should have happened in the nineties. Dick Haymaker insisted that they had nothing to do with the legislation, although they had been publicizing the Brady Bill before its passage. But he said it was a time when gun control seemed possible. It was at a point in history where things could change, and they did change. The Brady Bill was an important first step in background checks. It was an important first step, and it was the only step that we took, unfortunately. The Hattoris didn't stop there. In a later civil action suit, the court found Rodney Piercy liable to the Hattoris for $650,000 in damages. The Hattori family used those funds to establish two charitable funds in their son's names, one to fund U.S. high school students wishing to visit Japan, and one to fund organizations that lobby for gun control. The Hattori's U.S. lawyers argued that the PRCs had behaved unreasonably. Bonnie overreacted at two teenagers being outside her home. They were both liable due to their lack of communication. 
they were both liable due to their lack of communication with each other over what exactly the quote-unquote threat was. Neither had taken the best path to safety, remaining inside and calling police to handle the threat. Instead, Rodney was quick to use a firearm without assessing the situation on his own or using a warning shot or even a wounding shot. Instead, he went straight for the kill. Evidence was also presented that contradicted Rodney's claim that Yoshi was moving at a fast pace. Forensics showed that Yoshi was moving slowly or not at all when he was shot, with his arms away from his body indicating he was no threat at all. Overall, a far greater show of force was used than was appropriate in this case. Out of the total compensation, the $650,000, only $100,000 has been paid, and that was paid from the insurance company, not the PRCs. Those fuckers. Right? So, I will also note here, because I don't think I had touched back on it, whenever I said earlier that the Hattori's were putting money in towards funds, a lot of that is their own personal money. Like, they did use that $100,000, but they still, to this day, are, like, continuing to put money into these funds, and that's out of their own pocket. After the trial, Rodney told the press that he would never own another gun again, and I wonder how true he stayed to that. Right. The Japanese public were shocked not only by the killing, because like I said, handguns are banned in Japan, but by Rodney's acquittal. Shortly after the Hattori case, a Japanese exchange student, Takuma Ito, and a Japanese-American student, Go Mitsuri, Mitsura, were killed in a carjacking in San Pedro, California. Then shortly after that, another Japanese exchange student, Masakazu Kuriyama was shot in Concord, California. Many Japanese reacted to these deaths as being similar symptoms of a sick, so sick society. TV commentator Takashi Wada put the feelings into words by asking, but now which society is more mature? The idea that you protect people by shooting guns is barbaric. Amen. I can't... <laughs> I'm just going to toast to that one. Cheers. Ugh. Suspicions of implicit racism in the acquittal of Rodney Piercy further gained traction when shortly afterwards, a homeowner named Todd Vrzinka inside his house in Grand Haven, Michigan, similarly shot and killed a 17-year-old named Adam Provincial through the front door. Todd, however, received a 16 to 24 month term for reckless use of a firearm resulting in death, causing both Japanese and Asian American advocacy groups to speculate on whether the difference between Todd's conviction and Rodney's acquittal was related to the race of the victims. Hmm. Other groups publicly stated that Todd should have been convicted of the more severe charge of felony man manslaughter. And I don't disagree with that, but I also feel like uh, until we can get everybody charged for the same thing across the board, right. we shouldn't be focusing on greater charges for the ones that are actually being charged. Yeah. Shortly after this scenario was the similar case of Andrew DeVries from Aberdeen in Scotland, who got lost on January 7th, 1994, after drinking with American friends in Houston, Texas. He knocked on one door asking for directions and was shot by the householder through the closed door of the house. The householder, Jeffrey Agee, was not indicted and later settled for an undisclosed sum of a substantial claim by Mr. DeFree's widow, Allison. I, it's the foreign name that's throwing me off here. Yeah. So, a later set and later settled for an undisclosed sum of a substantial claim by Mr. DeFree's widow Allison, whose mother uh, whose mother complained to the press of a lack of support from the UK government, saying the prime minister doesn't want to rock the boat when it comes to the United States. People should be aware that if they become innocent victims of a crime in Texas, they cannot expect help from the government. The Foreign Office or the, the British Texas Consulate can't even <laughs> get protection from the state. A, of Texas. a fucking minute. 
in the state of Texas, it's between you and your gun, and that's it. <laughs> I was like, you want to complain about people from foreign like countries can't get protection. People in Texas can't even get protection from their own state. <laughs> like, not trying to... Like, to underlie uh, this, but, but absolutely, that is a great point. That <laughs> just, is a just great that point. out there. So, the DeVries family's member of parliament, John McCallion, criticized the investigation by the authorities in Houston, saying that there are many inconsistencies, indeed, blatant lies, in the official version of events. So, I go on to say, like, honestly, there are a shit ton of cases out there like Yoshi's. I do not have enough time to cover them all. Um, there are so many, like, different directions that I could take this conversation in. Right. One is, like, there is a big racial issue between Americans and Asian Americans and Asian immigrants. And that's I've just bullshit. Yeah, it's just bullshit. I did not, honestly, my, like, white self, and I'm very privileged to say this, like, don't get me wrong, I did not realize how big of an issue it was until the pandemic, whenever there started to become, like, all of the jumpings and the muggings, and, like, they were very publicized at that time because it was a movement. Uh -huh. And I did not realize how big of a problem it was until that movement. And... That is on me for being uneducated, <laughs> for not, just not being exposed to that kind of treatment. And just also, like, ever since I was a kid, my mom will tell you, like, I've just never really seen race. <laughs> I just don't understand the big deal of it. When I was a kid, I was like three years old and I asked my mama why the lady was chocolate and I was vanilla because I wanted to be chocolate too. <laughs> and I've just never grown out of that. Like, I've just always been that type of person. And sometimes I'm not gonna lie and cherry like sugarcoat it of course those thoughts creep in i was raised by some very racist people and generations but i've worked very hard and i'm working very hard to outgrow that and while i hope that that's where our whole society is growing towards i know that that's bullshit yeah. <laughs> like and so it's important for us to have these conversations and talk about these sort of things because the more we talk about it, the more we the more we become aware of it, and the more likely we are to change our personal thoughts, which is what's going to change the world. So, I hope that this was kind of an eye-opening case. If you didn't know, now you know. Um, but yeah, hope you enjoy this one, and we'll kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another Last Call with your bartender, Trish. And for today's, figured I'd keep it kind of relevant to the case. And I'm going to give some little fun facts about Baton Rouge. Woo! Home of the Tigers. Uh, it, it gets into that, yes. It was de it's where LSU is definitely located. Death so. Valley. Yes, so... Which, if you don't know, I'm a Mississippi State fan, not an LSU fan. But my dad's side of the family is from, like, the Mississippi border. So LSU is my second fave. <laughs> and let me just tell you, this past game between MSU and LSU broke my fucking heart. <laughs> it came down to the last quarter and my dogs were winning. And then they lost it. As they do. Well, I believe that Brian Kelly became the new coach for LSU. Therefore, I have to hate LSU until Brian Kelly moves on because um, there's some bad blood there as a Cincinnati Bearcat for Coach Kelly. Well, so. I like the it purple. Used to be, it used to be <laughs> Notre Dame because that's where he went, but now Marcus Friedman's the coach, and I love Marcus, so I can be a Notre Dame fan again. I like the purple and gold. <laughs> but, go Tigers. <laughs> As I was saying, I'm going to give some little fun facts, or maybe some little known facts, about Baton Rouge. So... For everyone that doesn't know, Baton Rouge is actually French for red stick, 
And, yeah. <laughs> That's why I love Baton Rouge. I guess. <laughs> um, so, like, the legend behind it is that it was actually named after a literal red stick. Um, when wandering around Louisiana more than 300 years ago, French explorer... I'm not even going to attempt to say this name because it's, ve- it. it's very... Um, it's the S one. Sierra D'Iberville. I know the last name. D'Iberville. So, yeah. Uh, this French explorer spotted a cypress... A cypress stick stained with blood of fish and animals on a Mississippi River bluff. The red stick served as the dividing line between the Bayou Gola, I think is how it's said, and the Hayuma tribes. Huma? Huma tribes? I don't know. Um, but they're two Native American tribes of that area. It divided their hunting grounds. So, speaking of these tribes, uh, Hyumas, if that's how it's said, translates to red. So, the tribe name can roughly be translated into red. And it just goes on with a bunch of stuff like that. Like, different I guess, like, people that have studied this stuff just saying, like, how it breaks down to, like, basically mean red. So, that's, like, another reason. I would have thought, I mean, I would have thought it meant red clay, to be honest. I mean, yeah. So, the Hyumas owned the land where the Hyuma's house sits today. If you visit Baton Rouge, you must visit this house and garden, the like house and garden. It's a classic antebellum home that is all that also has historical ties to the Hyuma Nation. The beautiful plantation was built in 1828, but the land was owned by the Hyumas until it was sold to. Maurice Conway and Alexander Latil in the mid 1700s. So, if this picture is what it uh, appears to be, it's it's pretty close to like the lake and that looks pretty. Um, the next fact it lists: the Battle of Baton Rouge was the only American Revolution battle fought outside the 13 colonies. In 1779, British West Florida stretched, yeah, stretched all the way to the Mississippi River and was now part of Louisiana, leading a hodgepodge army of Spaniards, Americans, Arcadians, Native Americans, and free black men. Spanish Louisiana Governor Bernardo de Galvez, I think is how it says, marched up river and across West Florida. The army fought the Battle of Baton Rouge for three hours on September 21, 1779, until the British surrendered. So, pretty, uh, cool, I guess. I just love it. It's very specific. Three hours. The Civil War's Battle of Port Hudson was the longest siege of, like, on U.S. soil. Um, The Louisiana State Capitol is the tallest state capitol in the U.S. It stands at 450 feet and 34 stories tall. So, speaking of LSU, the Indian mounds that are located on campus are actually older than the Egyptian pyramids. On LSU's campus are the Indian mounds, two 6,000-year-old mounds. 
built by Native Americans for cultural purposes. Here's my thing. And you can go LSU all you like, but you're telling me that their campus exists on some uh, old Native American like burial ground? No. Mm -mm. You asking for that place to be haunted as fuck. Why do you think Death Valley has such a stone? <laughs> you asking for that campus to be haunted as fuck. Why do you think every team is terrified of going to the Death Valley? <laughs> I don't know if you get into this in this, but I want to say Death, like, don't they have kind of like Tennessee be. Stadium? They have the, like... That was a rumor, but... I don't know if it's... Okay. Yeah. But, like, Tennessee, they have the Bone Farm there at the Tennessee Stadium. And they used to have their office was in the football stadium. Yeah, I don't know. I read a whole book on this shit. Death Acre or something like <laughs> I that. I don't know. It's a good read. Oh, gosh. But, yes. If you go to LSU, uh, you can go see the two Indian, like, burial mounds, which... Oh my gosh. These mounds are listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, and it said you can find students studying, picnicking, and napping on the mounds year-round. I love me some haunted shit, but I feel like I'm going to pick up some pissed-off Native American... And they're going to follow me home and haunt my ass. And I don't want that. You can... I'll, I'll go visit the ghosties. I don't want you following me back. Um, the next little fact. Baton Rouge was not part of the Louisiana Purchase. East Baton Rouge was part of the eight Florida parishes that were under dispute between Spain and the United States. Um... The parishes and part of Mississippi and Alabama were their own nation, though. Um, Mark Twain loved Baton Rouge, but hated the old state capital. Baton Rouge was close. Sorry. I'm like, wait, what? So he's quoted saying, Baton Rouge was clothed in flowers like a bride. No much more so than, no much more so like a greenhouse. He wrote in Life on the Mississippi. The magnolia trees in the Capitol grounds were lovely and fragrant with their dense, rich foliage and huge snowball blossoms. But he apparently had some very strong words for the old state Capitol building. It is pathetic enough with a whitewashed castle with turrets and things. Materials are all materials all in ungenuine within and without pretending to be what they are not should ever should ever have been built in this otherwise honorable place. And yeah, it definitely looks like someone tried to make like a castle. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's like you said, it's a very whitewashed looking castle. So, I don't know if he was upset because of that or like what. But apparently the old state capitol building is haunted. Give me a place in Louisiana that is not haunted. I mean, yeah. Uh, employees of the office... And officers at the old state capitol have chilling stories of a ghost that haunts the castle from dark shadows, slamming doors, and even physical bumps in into, sorry, this like article is like not the right size. So my phone keeps like shifting it over and so I have to keep moving the thing to make sure I'm not cutting off sentences. It says, even physical bumps into thin air. The story raised eyebrows and TV shows, such as, like, Ghost Hunters, have visited this old state capital. Mm -hmm. And it's said to be haunted by 
Senator Pierre Cavillion, I think is how it's said, who collapsed and died in the building after a bitter and heated argument about the role of gambling in Louisiana in 1852. So, if we go to Baton Rouge, I have a place to, <laughs> to go visit. Um, LSU Allen Hall has m these murals on the wall that apparently were hidden for more than 50 years. Apparently, in 1939, a graduate student, Roy Henderson, painted... Um, like a mural depicting um, arts and sciences in Louisiana. And part of the painting was covered for more than half a century, unnoticed by thousands of students and faculty who walk through the hall. In 2012, the, the full mural was uncovered and restored. There are many celebrities that call Baton Rouge home. These celebrities include Olympian Lolo Jones, NBA legend and Olympian Shaquille O'Neal, American Idol judge and guitarist Randy Jackson, rapper Little, I think it's Boozy? Little Boos, yes, Boosie. Boosie, Boosie yes. Boosie. That's what it is. I it's was like, Boosie badass and I'm zooming right at you. <laughs> I know you did not just. I was like. <laughs> like if I would B -O -O -S -I -B. hear. B-O-O-S-I-B. No, hold on. Hold on. You got you to gotta edit that part. B-O-O-S-I-E-B-A-D-A-Z-Z. -Z. That's me. Wipe me down. Wipe oh, me down. Wipe me down. Oh my God. <laughs> I started something. I'm so sorry. But um, another one is actor Shane West. Walk to remember. Yes. Always brings a tear to my eye. If I remember, I'm going to post these pictures that I'm going to show to Trish. But in high school, we did like a celebrity day. And me and my best friend, she's from Baton Rouge. So she was Boosie and I was Lil Wayne. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> so I'm going to find this picture and show it to Trish. And if I find it, I'll post it for y'all too. The last two that they list are filmmaker Steven Sarberg, I think it's how it's said, and then hip-hop artist Kevin Gates. <laughs> she ain't pretty in the face, but she's super thin. <laughs> I'm just thinking with my dick. <laughs> I got two. Oh, Kevin, please do not. Please do not sue us. Oh, my gosh. Please don't sue us. We ain't I got some money. <laughs> I suck at rapping. I just enjoy your music. That's it. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Um, another fact. Baton Rouge is the home to the original Raising Canes. Yep. The first successful civil rights bus boycott took place in Baton Rouge in 1953. In Pitch Perfect, if you haven't seen it, you're missing out because that's a brilliant movie. You have the famous cup scene with like the audition. So the cup that is used in that, which I've never noticed, is a Rotolo's Pizzola-like cup. Pizzeria cup, I should say. Nice. But yes. Um, so they use a Rotolo's cup. And it was actually like. Um, it says Louisiana is Hollywood South. And blockbuster hit Pitch Perfect was filmed on LSU's campus and around Baton Rouge. I did know that. In fact, a Rotolo's cup was used in Becca's famous cups audition scene. You can grab the iconic yellow cup at any Rotolo's location around Louisiana and while you're at it, enjoy some delicious pizza. There's actually a Rotolo's in Saraland too. So, um, also around the time that Pitch Perfect was filmed in Baton Rouge was whenever 
Twilight was filming in Baton Rouge. They filmed Eclipse, I think. And it was because everywhere else in the country was like charging outrageous rates. And so Louisiana and Mississippi to film here, there really wasn't any taxes. And so like Twilight came here to film (laughs) for Eclipse and then everybody else started coming here. Nice. So I just remember that because I was in college. And like I said, one of my best friends in college, she, her family was from Baton Rouge. Like she had a sister and a brother and her dad lived there. And so like I, we were about to go to Baton Rouge so I could stalk Ellen. <laughs> not Ellen. Uh, Kel- Kellen Lutz. Kellen Lutz. Ugh. Yes. And Taylor Lautner. Oh, gosh. And Jackson Rathbone. <laughs> mm. And uh, Daddy Carlisle. Oh, my God. Peter Fetchinetti. Daddy Carlisle. <laughs> Give me Peter any day. <laughs> um... Here's something I didn't know. Pink flamingos are are more valuable than beads during Mardi Gras in Baton Rouge, apparently. Baton Rouge has its own kind of Mardi Gras. Perhaps the most eccentric and unpredictable parade in the state. Spanish town... Spanish town touts a unique mascot, the pink flamingo, to signify the start of Mardi Gras season. Wooden pink flamingos show up in the LSU and City Lakes. Locals and students can canoe, kayak, and swim or wade out into the lake in a fantastic race to grab a big Baton Rouge badge of honor. It's a sight to see, but if you can't make it to the flamingo race, you can see them strapped onto multiple floats in the Spanish Town Parade. And you also see them like year round on select homes and bars. So if you ever go and wonder why there's a bunch of pink flamingos, that's probably why. Uh, another one: thousands of white pelicans flock to LSU and City Lakes. Here you go. Here's your tiger, Mike. Mike. Yes, Mike the Sixth, I guess is what Uh he is now, is the only live tiger mascot living on a college campus. Many schools claim the tiger as their mascot, but only one is home to a live tiger mascot living on a college campus. Mike the Tiger, adored and beloved Bengal-Siberian mix tiger, can be found swimming, napping, and playing in his 15,000 square foot habitat located just off Nicholson Drive on LSU's campus. I just feel like that is asking for some drunk college student to wander in there. (laughs) I'm shocked it hasn't happened yet. If it has, they have covered it up. Uh, President Zachary Taylor lived in Baton Rouge. Apparently, a museum is located in a railroad station. Located on the banks of the Mississippi River are the Louisiana Art and Science Museum and the Irene W. Pennington Planetarium. And the last one it lists, the Mall of Louisiana is home to the second largest indoor carousel in the world. So, I've never been to Baton Rouge. Shut the fuck up. I've never been. Shut the fuck up. So, this shocks you. I've only been to uh, New Orleans how many times because I'm not from here. And... My parents, like, when I was just staying with them, they would go and not take me. No, I'm taking you to Baton Rouge so you can hear an actual Cajun accent. Because, like, (laughs) I mean, you hear it in New Orleans, but you show up to Baton Rouge and that is all you get. I mean, I've watched football. I remember the old LSU coach that I'd literally be like, what is he saying? I need subtitles. He needs to be walking around with, like, live subtitles at all times. Mm-mm. No. All right. It's it's happening. <laughs> We're going. Uh, I'm going ch- to show you Mike. 
Mike the Tiger. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that's what he does. Uh, <laughs> but that was my little fun or little known facts about Baton Rouge. Um, Thanks for hanging out with us today. We'll have our, our stuff up on socials. We have our Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They're all tequila she wrote across the board. You can also email us with any case suggestions, recipe suggestions, um, new series we need to watch and stuff like that. Yes. Tequila she wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You can get ad-free episodes. You also get a bonus episode. And then if you sign up for any of our other tiers, you get even more content, such as Sloan's Ruining Paradise or my Haunted episodes. So definitely look at that. See what you might want to pay for in that. And if you think we're missing out on something, let us know. You can find us at patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote or you can go to any of our socials find our link tree and get a direct link to the patreon page yep but thanks for riding on the hot mess express today toot toot beep beep